Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. During mud season in rural Tennessee, a burned out car is discovered in the woods. It looks really suspicious, meaning like somebody drove it in there and set it on fire. And a body in the Sequatchie River. I think I've seen a body floating. I'm not for sure. Two calls like that together kind of had us boggled it. Things like that just don't happen in, in a small community. But the river's edge gives police their first big lead. Luckily, because of all the rain, there was an immense amount of mud and tracks everywhere. The mud told us this was a homicide. And points them in the direction of a cold and calculated attack. Law enforcement knew that at least two people had been involved in this. If it wasn't for the weather, we probably wouldn't have had as much evidence as we had. Twenty-eight miles north of Chattanooga, Tennessee, lies Dunlap, a quaint rural area in Sequatchie County with less than 5,000 residents. We're a farmland, small community, kind of tight-knit. It's very quiet, very calm. It's a safe community. We all go to the same schools, the same places to shop, same places to eat. Most people know a little bit or a lot about everybody else. Located in the Sequatchie Valley and surrounded by the Appalachians, Dunlap is a nature lover's delight. The Sequatchie River basically runs down the middle of it. It's a beautiful area. There's a lot of outdoor activities. There's hiking, um, hunting, fishing, biking. But the weather here keeps everyone on their toes. The weather here changes at the drop of a hat. You leave the house in the morning, be prepared for whatever weather condition possible. Here, the summers can be hot and muggy, but the winters can be cold and extremely wet. Our rainy seasons go between the fall and the spring. We stay pretty wet. Uh, we flood quite often. This causes a significant mud season. Mud season occurs more in February and March after the ground has been frozen, but begins to thaw. And then with the continued rains, everything turns into mud. And in February 2011, conditions are ripe for another muddy season that will play a pivotal role in a murder investigation. It's a cold, rainy morning when Sequatchie County Sheriff's deputies receive a 911 call from just north of Dunlap. 911, where's your emergency? Yeah, I just went down beneath my house to do some work on my property, mm -hmm. and somebody had pulled a car in there and burned it to the ground. It looks really suspicious, meaning like somebody drove it in there and set it on fire. When deputies arrive, 
they find nothing left but the vehicle's frame, which makes evidence recovery a challenge. The vehicle was completely burned out. What was left was not much. It had also just rained heavily the two days before, and that wasn't helping them much at the scene. It was a sloppy mess. Couldn't really tell of any kind of foot impressions. But then they see something wedged in the rocks nearby. The officer had recovered a handicap placard that had fallen outside the car. Once we ran the handicap placard through the state DMV, uh, we found out it come back to a Clifford Carden Jr. But where is he? And why is his car torched? Clifford Millard Carton Jr. was born on January 21, 1956, and was raised outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee by his grandmother. Cliff was extremely close to his grandmother. He spent a lot of time with her. He thought the world of her. At age 18, Cliff joined the Navy and served four years while earning his GED. But his true calling was always automobiles. He grew up when the muscle cars were the biggest thing. And he'd take a car, see how fast you can make it go. And then he realized that you can actually make a living on working cars. In 1978, while working at a service station, Cliff met and started dating a woman named Teresa. She already had a five-year-old son named Chris, but Cliff embraced him as if he were his own. Technically, he is my stepdad, but he is the man that I call dad. And he took care of me, put me on the steps to, to becoming a man. After a short courtship, Cliff and Teresa wed in 1979 and soon welcomed a baby girl. Unfortunately, their marriage didn't last and the couple split after seven years. Even so, Cliff stuck close by. Most dads, they do. They, they bolt out of town or they stay away for a long time or whatever. But when they divorced, he basically moved right across the street. His family was more important to him than anything else on, on the planet. Eventually, Cliff met a 27-year-old hairdresser, Cindy Tepley, who was a single mom with two kids of her own. Cliff and Cindy met roughly around 1988. They had a little bit of a, I think about a year courtship or so, and then they got married, moved up on the mountain. The two bought a place in Bledsoe County, and life was good. Cindy would cut hair in town while Cliff worked at a local dealership to support his growing family. He drove off that mountain every day, an hour and a half drive every day to go to work. And to me, that shows dedication for the family. On special occasions, he took Cindy and the kids to NASCAR races where they would all join in his favorite pastime. Cliff, uh, he loved to go to Daytona. It's just cars going fast. That's what he loved. He was into collecting uh, a lot of the memorabilia. He had tons of different cars, different objects, shirts and stuff like that with NASCAR on them. But when Cliff turned 50, his health began to decline. He struggled with diabetes and heart problems and had to take multiple prescriptions. It would slow him down a lot. He had, had to take a, a leave of absence from uh, the dealership. He had filed for disability, so he was having to take it slow. His marriage also took a turn for the worse, and Cindy moved out after 20 years together. They just grew apart. He wanted to make it work, but it wasn't going anywhere. By 2011, Cliff was trying to get back on his feet, spending time with friends at his favorite tavern and even dating again. He liked to frequent Fuzzy's Bar over in Sell Creek a lot. He was a well-liked guy. 
he wanted to be around people, to have somebody to talk to, so he'd have a beer or two, uh, hang out, and then make his way back home. He was just a laid-back individual that liked to spend time with his family. But now Cliff's vehicle has turned up abandoned in the woods and incinerated, and he's nowhere to be seen. After checking DMV records, deputies discover that Cliff Carden lives in Bledsoe County, roughly 20 miles north from where his torch car was found. We contacted that county to see if they knew him. We want to make sure he's not hurt. But before Sequatchie County deputies can even start looking for Cliff, they receive another call that's much more disturbing. Sequatchie County 911. Well, ma'am, I was walking Phoenix Kansas and I think I've seen a body floating. And this tiny little town with its muddy terrain is about to turn upside down. The community was in shock. They couldn't believe what took place. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In February 2011, Dunlap, Tennessee authorities have just found a vehicle burned beyond recognition, abandoned in the north end of the muddy woods. Dunlap's been soaked with nearly an inch of rain since the end of January, and temperatures have been fluctuating between 28 and 68 degrees. So all of that combines to create a muddy mess. The Sequatchie County Sheriff's Department traces the car to a 55-year-old named Cliff Carden Jr who lives 20 miles away. But before they can track him down, an urgent call comes in.
Sequatchie County 911. Yes, can I get an officer to come out to uh, Frank Day Road? What's the problem? The caller, a local man named Larry Eggert, says he's at a remote spot along the Sequatchie River near Pickett's Bridge, and he's just found something shocking in the water. I think I've seen a body floating. I'm not for sure. Detectives race to Pickett's Bridge, hoping the weather holds off. As we arrived to the scene, we could see the mud puddles. It was muddy. Uh, it was misting rain. It was real cold. It was just in that weird mist. Mist often forms when the warmer air from over the water moves over the cooler land. And it's comprised of really tiny water droplets, which is not actually considered precipitation. It doesn't fall to the ground. Once there, Edgar points detectives towards the foot of the bridge. As they approach, they are careful not to disturb any potential evidence. The actual ground, the riverbank around the river was just pure mud. It hadn't had been able to dry out a whole lot during the winter. Around that area, there's what we call silt. It's like sand. And it's like a sandy, muddy kind of texture. There was mud everywhere. You could see tracks going in and out. We obtained booties on our shoes at that point in time and kept a single path in to be able to determine uh, our footprints versus any other footprints that would be there on the scene. When they reach the water's edge, a chilling sight awaits them. The first thing you see is the body laying in the river. Uh, he's close to the riverbank's edge. But he was in the shallow part of the river, so the part of the body was, was above the waterline. Rigor mortis had set in. There was one arm that was um, raised up somewhat. They pull the body to shore, and thanks to the winter weather, he appears well-preserved. If a body is in a body of water in the river for a period of time, the body deteriorates significantly. At that point in time in February, the water temperature was probably between 35 and 40 degrees, like a refrigerator, cold enough that it slowed decomposition. Detectives wonder if it was some kind of accident. Was it a situation where he slipped, fell, landed in the water, hit his head. It was not apparent to us what had caused his death. But it doesn't take long for them to figure out foul play may be involved. We're trying to figure out how he got to the scene with no vehicle there. If he was out walking around, he would, you would think he would have more clothing on. He's wearing a t-shirt and jeans, basically, and some kind of boots. But he had no jacket on, which we thought was odd since it was cold. He also has no wallet or ID. When you don't locate a wallet, you start wondering if it's somebody who may have been robbed and killed. The only clue to his identity is his T-shirt that says Fuzzy's Bar. Fuzzy's, just a little local place. Pretty much everybody in the surrounding area knew about it. As investigators start to examine the area by the water, it confirms they've got a murder on their hands. We have found a pile of blood at that we determined that he was at least had laid there for a minute. There are obvious drag marks down to the base of the river. We start noticing the heel of a foot being drugged through the mud. The drag marks show that this was not an accident. In fact, the muddy drag marks show a calculated criminal. The mud told us that whoever had killed him drugged the body in the river in an effort to conceal the crime. With the intent that the body would float down the river, maybe either sink or or decompose, but it stayed basically where it was at. The Sheriff's Department calls in members of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, and together they rope off the riverbank to gather evidence. 
The mud, which runs all the way from the road down to the river's edge, gives them plenty to work with. You can see along the side of the embankment where a vehicle had spun out, causing tracks. You see where the footprints of people walking in and out to the river in the mud. Investigators quickly turned their attention to the man who called 911. We're trying to determine, did the guy who called it in, is he the one that made the tracks? Someone calls 911, they may be the suspect, and they may feel if they call it in that no one will think they're actually the one who did it. Egger tells police that he goes down to the bridge looking for aluminum cans to recycle. People would go there to park and party and drink beer, throw out their trash, and of course, aluminum cans. And he went down there that morning. He saw the body. Uh, terrified him, he ran back to the road and actually flagged down a wildlife officer who just happened to be driving by, and he notified the sheriff's department. Police compare his shoes to the prints they found by the water, but they're not a match. We eliminated him as a suspect very quickly. His story checked out. When he saw the body, I mean, he ran. He was terrified. Investigators focus on the mud, but knowing the weather can turn on a dime, they must be quick about it. With the weather in the south like it is, you have to worry about uh, if it starts raining, uh, if it's going to wash away the tire impressions that we have or the foot impressions or any kind of physical evidence that may be there that could have been left behind. As detectives race to collect evidence, another important clue in the mud is about to surface. That had a pretty important uh, impact on the case. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's February 2011 in Dunlap, Tennessee. Authorities are investigating 55-year-old Cliff Carden's burned-out car and what appears to be a murder victim floating near the muddy banks of the Sequatchie River. Previous rainfall and constant mist had saturated the area by the river, making it possible for the police to identify footprints, tire tracks, and drag marks in the mud. We had a numerous amount of tire impressions, and we did have foot tracks. Most of the stuff we found there were uh, boot tracks. 
they make sure to photograph all the tracks and drag marks in the mud. Although it's difficult to tell a specific shoe, the muddy prints do tell them one thing. The riverbank showed obvious signs of two people dragging a body and two sets of footprints. It wasn't just one person that had put the body into the river, but two people. One being a smaller individual, possibly a female, one being a larger individual, more than likely a male. So this man was killed somewhere else, which was our theory, and drug into the river. The fact that there was mud on the bank, which left drag marks, was, was very helpful to us. They attempt to make plaster molds of the shoe prints and tire tracks, but the weather is hindering their efforts. Due to the fact of the cold and the, uh, the mud, with the rain and stuff, it kept everything wet. The uh, plaster was not gonna set up. It was too cold for it. By 5.30 p.m., police clear the crime scene just as others finish up with the burned car in the woods. Now back at the station, police working both cases share notes. I don't think we get a lot of cases of burned vehicles. And of course, a body found floating in the river is not something that happens every day. So those two events were quickly pieced together. Once we pulled the driver's license photo and we started uh, looking at the crime scene photos of the body with the temperatures of the water and preserving the body like it did, we were able to determine easier that it was Cliff Carden Jr. Now investigators know that Cliff's car was torched 10 miles north of where his body was recovered. To look for clues, investigators make their way to his house to conduct a search. We wanted to find out everything we could find about Mr. Carden. Four hours later, Sequatchie County Sheriff's detectives and the TBI arrive at Cliff's trailer. From the outside, nothing looks suspicious, but inside is a different story. We had a key to get inside the residence. As we go inside, we're starting to notice some things that appear to us out of place. There was a propane tank that was turned over and, and placed up next to uh, like an electric heater. There's like wooden, TV dinner tray pushed against it as if it was set to maybe start a fire in the house. The home is also in disarray. The house had been rummaged through. Uh, there was stuff laying around. You could tell someone had been in that house. But it did not appear that there had been any forced entry into the residence. Which means it may have been someone who may have known Mr. Carden to be able to get into his residence. The trailer shows no signs of a struggle or any blood. There was nothing to indicate the homicide occurred at his residence. Our feeling was that the house had been entered after his death. And while we're there, his wife, Sydney, showed up and some other family members. They immediately noticed some of Cliff's things are missing. Some of the NASCAR items that Mr. Carden did have were pretty valuable. Some of those items were missing. Investigators questioned the family briefly. Talking to the family, you could tell that they were upset. Obviously, they give us weren't who their alibis are. All the family members cooperated to the fullest with us. That's when they learned that Cliff and Cindy split up almost a year ago. But Cindy maintains that they stayed friends. In fact, she had just spoken to Cliff the previous morning at 8 a.m. She talked to 
Mr. Carden about where he had been, and he had another female with him. And she described the female as a, as a dark-haired girl that she didn't know real well. Cindy says that she can vouch for her whereabouts since she manages a hair salon during the day and attends classes at night. She cooperated to the fullest, but we wanted to make sure that we could track down Cindy's alibis to make sure she was not involved. Obviously, the spouse is going to be someone you're going to look at, especially if they're separated. Although the investigation is just getting started, the Tennessee weather is about to give police more pieces of the puzzle. Anybody that's going to be involved would have to be muddy and dirty due to the weather. In February 2011, authorities in Dunlap, Tennessee are investigating the mysterious death of 55-year-old mechanic Cliff Carden, whose car was burned in the woods while his body was found floating in the Sequatchie River. Luckily, because of all the rain and the moisture that winter, it, this occurred during mud season. So the footprints, the tire tracks, the drag marks clearly indicate that he was killed somewhere else and dragged into the river by two people. The next morning, police learned the results of Cliff's autopsy. The cause of death was a single shot to the head. It was determined that was the only shot that he had. The forensic pathologist recovered the uh, bullet from Mr. Carden's skull. He'd been shot by a nine millimeter pistol. Since the water temperatures of the Sequatchie River were freezing that winter, the medical examiner is able to tell how far away the gun was when fired. The body was preserved sufficiently that there was stippling around the gunshot wound. That's from the gases and burnt powder that expelled from the weapon when it's fired. Based on the stippling, the shooter was within a couple of feet of the victim. The icy river not only preserved the outside of Cliff's body, but the inside as well. So they were able to give us trajectory of the uh, shot being from the right side of his body to the left side of his body. According to the medical examiner, Cliff's body had been in the water for roughly 24 to 48 hours. And because the frigid temperatures preserved so much valuable evidence, police now have a clearer picture of the killer. You would expect that it would be someone who the victim trusted, and he had no other wounds on him, which would also indicate that there was not a, a, a fight. We know that he's got a, a wife and a girlfriend. We want to start tracking people down to try to find out who they are and what their involvement with Mr. Carden was. Investigators look into Cindy's alibi, and it checks out. She was an estranged wife, but she was eliminated as a suspect very quickly. She was cooperative with the officers. You know, we didn't get the feeling that she was hiding. Someone else killed Cliff, but who and why? What was the cause of it? Was it just someone out to kill him because they didn't like him? Was he robbed? But one thing is certain. This was not something that was just happened. This was an intentional killing. News of the murder travels fast in this tight-knit community, and the sheriff's department urges the public to call in with leads. We have a tip line set up. They can contact or to reach out to us if anybody has any knowledge of anything. 
Being a uh, smaller knit community, it does uh, help us out a lot. A lot of people know everybody here. It was easy to start determining who his people around him might be, who his family was, any associates, any relatives. I think the community was in shock. They wanted the information just like I did. Meanwhile, detectives focus on trying to retrace Cliff's last known whereabouts. They know Cindy last spoke to him on February 2nd at 8 a.m., and his car and body were found the next day. So he must have been killed on February 2nd, but where? He was wearing a orange shirt, he had blue jeans on, and the shirt was from Fuzzy's Bar in Saudi Daisy, um, or Graysville, somewhere over there. And it was a shirt for like a poker run. And um, so that, that gave us Fuzzy's Bar as obviously a possible place to look. The name Fuzzy's Bar indicated to us that he had some connection to this Fuzzy's Bar. Our next step was to go over to uh, Fuzzy's Bar we wanted to determine if anybody knew him there, if anybody knew who his girlfriend was. When detectives arrive, patrons there say that Cliff was a regular for years. We found out that Cliff was an outgoing guy who was uh, friendly with everybody. No one ever had anything bad to say about Cliff Carden. The owner of Fuzzy's Bar mentioned that Mr. Carden had been in that establishment recently. We had uh, talked to a waitress at uh, Fuzzy's Bar who members waited on Cliff Carden. She said Mr. Carden had a lot of cash on him and was kind of flamboyant about it, paying for drinks and stuff. They also learned that he wasn't alone. She members waited on Cliff Carden and a female, dark-headed female. The dark-haired female was kind of standoffish. No one really knew who this unidentified female was at the time. As news continues to spread through town, calls start flooding the small sheriff's office, and one tip seems promising. A local man says the night before Cliff's body was found, around 6 p.m., he saw a man and a woman walking in the north end of town, and he thought it was odd. At that time of night, on February 2nd, it was cold, temperatures around 34 degrees. So not many people would be out walking by choice. And he stopped and he offered him a ride. The tipster says he didn't know the female, but he did know the man. 34-year-old Thomas Brian Bettis. He was related to him, maybe a cousin or second cousin, so he knew Brian. He gave him a ride to the local motel here in town and then to a local store in town also. He says he didn't think much of it until he saw the news a few days later. He found them walking in an area that was close to the location where Mr. Carden's car was later found burned. And they had mud and stuff on their shoes and they were dirty. This really piques detectives' interest. Anybody that's gonna be involved in the homicide or the burning of the car would have to be muddy and dirty due to the weather. We don't have the red clays maybe in the southern parts in Georgia, but um, it's, it's something similar to that. You usually have to take your shoes off or else you're gonna track that mud pretty much everywhere you go throughout your house, throughout your place of business, your car. 
So yeah, once it gets on you, it sticks with you and, and gets on everything. That's when he made the connection and decided to call it in. Detectives recognized the name. Brian Bettis is a, uh, a local of Sequatchie County. He had been arrested a couple of times and he was known to everybody here in law enforcement or in the community in the uh, south end of our area. Bettis's past run-ins with police involved misdemeanor offenses though, and nothing like murder. Nonetheless, he is suspect number one. They just have to find him and his female partner. At this point in time, we're really starting to search for Brian Bettis and see if he can help us identify the unknown female. Hopefully, either Brian Bettis or the unknown female may be the link that we need to know of what happened to Cliff Carn Jr. and how he ended up in the river that day. Investigators decide to check out the store and motel where the man said he dropped the couple off that night. They also spread the word. We started putting out to locals that we were looking for Mr. Brian Bettis. We needed to talk to him to figure out what his involvement and who the mystery female was. Sequatchie County investigators are one step closer to finding out who killed Cliff Carden and why. That's really what broke the case, so to speak. While investigating the murder of Cliff Carden Jr., Sequatchie County detectives are on the trail of a local man named Brian Bettis and a mystery woman who were seen on February 2nd near Cliff's torched vehicle, and they were both covered in mud. You have two people walking in the location where the car was burned in the cold and damp. We're talking temperatures in the 30s. So that obviously was a suspicious thing. But did they have something to do with his murder? We started putting the word out, hey, if anybody can get a hold of Mr. Brian Bettis, can he give us a call? The following day, Sequatchie County detectives and TBI visit the store that Bettis and the woman reportedly visited. They find footage of the couple inside around 7.15 p.m. The surveillance video showed them behaving and acting as a normal couple would otherwise do. They had purchased some items, uh, clothing, cell phones, and stuff like that. When they arrive at the motel, police learned the couple had checked out on the 5th, but had checked in on February 2nd around 5 p.m. They review footage from that day and know they're on the right track. It shows Bettis getting out of Mr. Carden's car with a white female, and they're carrying Dale Earnhardt memorabilia into the, into the motel. We knew that someone had stolen Dale Earnhardt memorabilia from his home, and they're also in Mr. Carden's car. They entered the, the hotel like you would expect any couple to do. They reserved a room. The female is actually paying the bill. You see her peeling off the cash to pay the bill. Police check inside the room. They're hoping to find any evidence that the couple might have left behind, but it's already been cleaned. The owner of the hotel tells us that he keeps his garbage can locked and that they had just removed the trash and had put it in the bins. Detectives gain access to the dumpster. We started removing the trash and trying to determine room by room where it came from. Detective Lockhart found the garbage from their room and in that garbage found receipts which matched items that we could see them checking out. That's when they find a huge piece of evidence hidden amongst their trash. We had found a uh, pill bottle with a, a label partially tore off 
and we could read the last name of Cardin Jr. on it, uh, and it had a bloody thumbprint on it. It just tied in that these people were pretty obviously involved in the homicide. Police begin working up an arrest warrant for Brian Bettis, but before they even finish, he appears at their doorstep, ready to talk. We hear that Brian Bettis is sitting at the Just Center looking for us. TBI and myself, we want to get there as quick as we can. Investigators sit down with Brian, who appears nervous. We explained to Mr. Bez that we're there to talk to him about Cliff Garden Jr. And Brian lays it out for us pretty clearly. He claims his girlfriend, 35-year-old Susan Lynette Baker, was the one who pulled the trigger. He explained to us Susan Baker and Cliff Garden had been dating and, and were a couple. They would travel. He would buy her things. She would stay with him from time to time. She was also dating Brian Bettis at the time and was using Cliff Carden for the money aspect. Susan, who's a prescription pill addict, also used Cliff for his meds. Mr. Carden was on disability and he had prescriptions for various pills. And Mr. Carden was, was selling his pills as you know, a lot of people do. And Susan Baker had been with him when he was selling pills, she was aware that he had what amounted in her mind a substantial amount of cash. Brian says Susan knew Cliff kept his cash in the dashboard of his car, along with a nine millimeter. She calls me and she's like, uh, we'll make some money, we'll wait and make some money. He explained to us that the plan was just to do a robbery of Cliff Carden Jr. The plan never was to, uh, to kill Mr. Carden. According to Bettis, on February 2nd, Cliff and Susan went for a drive. They picked Bettis up under the pretense that he wanted to buy pills from Cliff. It was late morning, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. They went out into basically a remote area. It's basically a dirt road, and there's no houses around. He was in the back seat, and his job was just to kind of be there as muscle. And that Susan Baker is the one that uh, pulled the weapon. Next thing he knew, she had shot Cliff Carden in the head. She done had the gun because when we was coming out of the like I said, it was boom that quick. He was not expecting that. He had not encouraged her to do that. I think he said he freaked out. I was scared, dude. You know what I mean? I just wanted to get his He shot the head that far from me. Next, Bettis claims Susan turned the gun on him. After she shot him in the head, she, she looked at me. She, she said, you are going to help me. And that after the shooting, him and... Susan Baker had taken the body to the uh, Pickett's Bridge. He says it was just a secluded spot they happened to find. Due to the mud, it was easier for them to drag the body and push the body off into the river uh, with no resistance. And basically, the water was so cold that neither one of them wanted to get in to put him out further in the middle of the river. So he literally never floated away. The tire tracks in the mud, the two sets of footprints, and the drag marks all tended to corroborate Mr. Bettis's version of events. The gun never left her possession. She kept it the whole time. Brian also says that Susan stole his pills and about $1,000 from Cliff's vehicle. After that, 
Bettis claims it was her idea to break into Cliff's trailer and steal his NASCAR memorabilia. She didn't go to his house. She got the keys to his house and everything. He says they then checked into the motel and torched the car. He was clarifying everything that we had known, the robbery at the residence, the burning of the car, disposal of the body. But police aren't so sure he's as innocent as he claims. Mr. Bettis' statement to law enforcement was he was so scared of Miss Baker, I don't think anyone actually believed. On the surveillance camera videos, we could see them laughing, having a good time, just hours after the homicide. Investigators need to speak with the mystery woman herself to figure out which one of them is the real killer. The hunt was on looking for Miss Susan Baker. By February 2011, mud season was well underway in Dunlap, Tennessee giving investigators a leg up from the moment they found Cliff Carton's body. The weather played the biggest role in letting them know before they had a suspect that there were two people involved. They kind of give them a direction to go in. The drag marks were very important. And of course, the water temperature of that, number one, helped us identify the body and it preserved the evidence of, of the gunshot wound. And if it wasn't for as much rain and then as cold a temperature we had, we probably wouldn't have had as much evidence as we had. After Brian Bettis' confession, police are looking for his girlfriend, Susan Baker. We had made the decision that we were going to charge both of them with the homicide for killing Mr. Carden. Brian gives up her whereabouts, and that night, police close in on Susan outside of Chattanooga. She was arrested without any incident. She was transported back to Dunlap by the sheriff. Now in custody, Susan tells her side of the story. Brian was jealous of Cliff. Every time we got into an argument, he'd always bring up Cliff's name. Miss Baker was trying to play the, the, the victim card. She did admit to staging a robbery, but she was trying to explain to us that the, uh, the killing of Cliff Carden was all Brian Bettis' idea, not hers. Who shot him? And eventually, they, they pressed her on it and said, said that's not true. I uh, explained to her that the trajectory of the bullet going in could not come from the back seat where Brian Bess was sitting at. That it could only come from the area that she was sitting. That's when Susan decides to come clean. You shot Cliff in the passenger seat, didn't you? Yeah, I did. She said that uh, as they were driving, she reached underneath the seat, pulled a uh, pistol out, pointed it at his head, and pulled the trigger, ultimately killing Mr. Carden. I didn't even know if he. And you were not, because I didn't hear no glass break or nothing, because all it done was been popped. And <laughs> say they were like, that nothing but go everywhere. At one point, she demonstrated. She got down, kind of hunkered down next to Detective Lockhart and showed him. You know, he grabbed your arm. Grabbed my arm, and I just went like this, I went, like that. That's what I did. I didn't look, I didn't aim. I've been in law enforcement now 21 years, but never actually have someone who has committed murder point her finger at you like it's a gun and, and pull the trigger. Susan admits to dumping his body, stealing from him, 
and finally torching his car to destroy any evidence. I have two defendants who are basically telling me the same story as to how the crime occurred. That was very significant. Authorities charge both Susan Baker and Brian Bettis with first-degree felony murder, especially aggravated robbery, and setting fire to personal property. The fact that they had, had both individuals, and both individuals had admitted to it, it was a huge relief. Susan even admits that she sold the murder weapon, and police are able to recover it. There was blood inside the gun, and DNA matched that to the victim. And the bloody thumbprint on the pill bottle is also a match for Cliff. The evidence is overwhelming. But Susan's attorney attempts to fight the case in court, and her trial is delayed for years. It doesn't become a question of whether they did it or not, although basically she was severely intoxicated during that interview. The defense argued that she was under the influence, that she was not competent to understand waiving her constitutional rights. Three years after the murder, the trial finally proceeds, and prosecutors use the mud evidence to help their case. We did include the most significant piece of evidence from the crime scene itself, where the drag mart's going down the river. You can see where the photographs that we used helped the jury paint the picture through the, uh, the mud. And on March 6, 2014, the jury reaches a verdict. Susan Baker is convicted on all counts. She is sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. Brian Bettis did not go to trial. Brian Bettis opted out and took a plea agreement and pled out to 35 years in prison. It gives the family, I think, some closure, but there's no winners in these situations. For Cliff's family, they're still learning how to live without their rock. He was a pillar in the family. When we needed somebody just to sit there and listen to us, that's what he was my lean to. He's going to be remembered. Susan Baker and Brian Bettis, in their haste to score fast money, never counted on the weather. No one thought mud season would have such a huge impact on the case. Just an old rainy day actually helped us in solving this crime.